Now this from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that He has chosen you because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of persons we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for in spite of persecution you received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This is the word of God for the people of God. So what's proven to be one of the best business books written in this century was written by a guy named Jim Collins. He's a former Stanford professor, now a best-selling author of a number of different business books and others. He writes in the final chapter of that book about a cross-country track team who moved, he says, from good to great over the course of about five years. He tells the story of these youngsters and their coaches and what happened and how they moved from being just any other cross-country team to moving into the top 20 in the state for a few years and then finally winning the state championship and then the year after that, another state championship. He said he got together with these coaches and leaders of this program after they had won these back-to-back state championships to talk with them about what they thought was making the most difference in terms of them moving from just being a good team to a great or a championship team. He said their conversation began to revolve around their motto. They thought their motto was a clue to their success. I've put it in your outline Their motto was, we run best at the end. We run best at the end. We run best at the end of our practices. We run best at the end of races. We run best at the end of the season when it matters the most. He said he realized as they talked about it that the coaches had figured out a way to visualize for the student athletes what that meant to run best at the end. He said in a typical 5-kilometer or 3.1-mile race, which is what they normally ran, that they began to station a coach at the 2-mile marker. His job was to count how many runners were ahead of their particular runners from their school, and then they gave rewards at the end for how many people they passed in the last mile because we run best at the end. They wanted to help them see and be rewarded for the effort at the end. They said everybody began to adopt that. They began to understand that. They began to seemingly give more effort. And certainly they got better results when they talked about we run best at the end. It's the whole notion of finishing strong. 
it can be applied to any number of endeavors in our lives, the importance of finishing strong. But for our purposes this morning, I'm thinking particularly about the Christian year. You know, we start in Advent, usually around that first Sunday of December, that begins the Christian year. Then we follow this journey of Jesus throughout the calendar year till we come down to November, these last four Sundays this year, until we get to the very last Sunday of November, November 24, which we declare as Christ the King Sunday. The idea is that Christ is the King of our lives, that Christ takes preeminence takes a priority in our lives over all other things and as i was thinking about these scriptures we're going to be reading from paul's letters i seized on this idea of what it means to finish strong and what if we were those people who finished strong you may remember a couple of weeks ago we were reading back over here in philippians and paul describes his own faith journey like this but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Can't you just see Paul straining forward, pressing on, giving his best effort, wanting to be a faithful witness for Christ? I began to wonder, what if we had a motto at Boston Avenue? What if we said at Boston Avenue, we finish strong? What if we all adopted that so that we were thinking, this month of November, this is when we really step up, we finish strong, we're here every week. We give of our financial resources back to God every week. We pray for one another, we pray for our pastors, we pray for our choirs, we pray for those in need because you know what? We finish strong. We serve one another. We serve those whom we meet throughout the week. We're a walking and talking witness to the love of God alive in the world because we finish strong. What if we all adopted that for this month and sensed that the Holy Spirit was at work in us to help us move forward and to finish strong in our faith our whole series this month is going to be looking at different aspects or different angles of what the passages of Scripture say in terms of how we could finish strong. I wonder if you might adopt that. I know this is a risk, but would you say out loud with me, we finish strong? We finish. Oh, that was good. You're right ahead of me. You're right. Let's say that again. We finish strong. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But I know it's easier to say than it is to do. I've done a little running in my life. I know it's easy to start strong and then lag in the middle. You start out on a 5K and you feel fresh and you think, I've got this. And depending on your training, about mile one or two, you lag a little, you're breathing hard. It's easy to get distracted, to lose focus. If you're in a race and people start to pass you, it's easy to get discouraged. But it might help as you're pressing along to think, I finished strong. We run best at the end. I can do this. 
especially if you know others are counting on you, that you're a part of something bigger than yourself. John Wesley understood this idea of starting strong and wanting to finish strong, but lagging in the middle. So he organized these Methodist followers, these people coming to him for spiritual guidance into what he called societies. They were to meet during the week for singing and fellowship, sometimes for preaching or what they often called exhortation of the word. They were to be groups that brought people together for encouragement but also for accountability. Wesley understood we needed both. We need to be encouraged, but we also needed some accountability if we're going to stick to our commitments. It made a huge difference in the life of Christianity and religious faith across England that finally spilled across the Atlantic into the new world. The idea of people helping one another be strong in their faith and their commitment. As I was reading the text for today, the Bible commentator in the bottom here on my page where this text is says that Paul was doing a similar kind of thing as he's writing this letter to the Thessalonians. He says he's encouraging them, predominantly Gentile converts, to stay strong in the faith, to trust what he had taught them, to stand strong against persecution to do their best and trust God for the rest. To do their best and trust God for the rest. I've heard physical trainers say, do your best and forget the rest. I like that, but I like this better. It helps in a workout, but this is probably better for faith. Do your best and trust God for the rest. Paul then mentions these three characteristics of faith, love, and hope, characteristics of a strong Christian life. You can hear it in verse 3. He says, we are remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. These are marks of a strong Christian life. Paul repeats them over and over in different places when he's writing letters to Christians who he's been coaching along. When he's writing the letter to the Galatians, he puts it this way, For in Christ Jesus, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Or maybe even more familiar with In this letter he wrote to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13, he ends that section by saying this, And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. You hear that idea of God working in us. So that we are those who embody faith, hope, and love as we live our lives, as we go about our everyday activities, as we interact with each other. These are the characteristics of a life of a person who is a follower of Christ. In this text, he goes on to talk about these early Christians and says in verse 4 and 5, For we know, brothers and sisters, you are beloved by God, 
that God has chosen you. And we know this because the message that we proclaim to you, you receive not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We don't talk a lot about conviction. Christians used to talk about that quite a bit more. Have you ever thought about what it means to live in full conviction? Have you ever received something in full conviction where you were fully convinced? John Wesley, during the early days of the Methodist movement, was looking for leaders to proclaim this gospel, to go out and talk to people who were in need. In a letter, I think he gives us an example of what full conviction is all about when he writes this. Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw whether they be clergy or lay. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. Wesley is looking for preachers with full conviction, full commitment, those who are convinced that Jesus not only has been raised from the dead, but he's come to be our Lord and Savior and is with us even today. Wesley understands the kind of difference that will make that with that kind of conviction, God can do great things in the world through us. Tony Robbins has written a bunch of books He's basically made a living helping people change their beliefs from thinking, I can't do this or that, to I can do this or that. He had a dramatic presentation that he would make. He would speak to a group gathered together about that, and then to demonstrate it, he would bring out a cart that was full of hot coals and he would take off his shoes and ask how many of you can walk across these hot coals and of course not many volunteered but he says you can do this and then he would talk to them about how to get in the right state of mind and to believe that they could do it then he would step up take off his shoes and walk across the hot coals He's had hundreds, thousands of people do this as a way to demonstrate the things that you think first you can't do, you really can do. Now he has been sued by a few people because of burns on the bottom of their feet. So I don't think he does that demonstration very much anymore. But nonetheless, he makes a good point about the difference between an opinion or a belief and a conviction, or as our text says, being fully convicted. He says the difference has to do with the certainty which we, with which we hold a belief and the emotional intensity with which it's embedded in our hearts and minds. Now, he says this can go awry, that people can become passionate about something, and it can go in the wrong direction, and it becomes very negative. And he talks about religious zealots and crusades and genocidal wars. He reminds us of the group that followed Jim Jones. And then one day, they were so convinced that this guy was right that they drank Kool-Aid that was laced with cyanide, and they died. He says that's conviction on the negative side where things go wrong but he said there's also you can see conviction on the positive side where truly religious people get inspired to do good 
And when you meet them, you know that they're on fire to do something good in the world. They're either volunteering for an organization or telling you about how they help somebody or serve somebody. They're maybe starting a new organization or a nonprofit to help a group that needs some extra assistance. Or they're in a fight for justice for a group of people here or there. You've seen that, right, where you've met someone and you can't talk to them before very long. They're telling you about what God is doing in their life or what they're doing for good in the world. They're fully convinced or convicted, you could say, in terms of the work that they're doing. Do you know the name Ed Roberts? Ed was a fellow that when he was 14 years old was paralyzed from the neck down. He was a quadriplegic. By day, he lived in a wheelchair and had to have a breathing machine. At night, he depended on an iron lung. But after a while, he began to think there must be more to life than this. And he began to look at other people with these kind of physical challenges and thought, there's got to be more for me and more for them. And he began to try to figure out what to do about it. And he finally became convinced that if something was going to be done, he was going to have to do it. And so he began to advocate for more help for people with physical challenges or disabilities. He's one who began to talk about the importance of ramps in terms of entrances to buildings, about having parking spaces with enough space for a person in a wheelchair to be able to get in out of their vehicle to even enter a building. He began to educate and advocate for bathrooms that were accessible to people with certain physical challenges. In fact, he became the first person that was a quadriplegic that graduated from the University of California at Berkeley. He continued his advocacy and finally became the director for the state of California for rehabilitation services. He was a tireless advocate, and he says he met with all kinds of resistance. He, but he met condescension with conviction. I don't think it's too strong to say that he was fully convicted about the need to make change, to help people in those kind of difficult circumstances. Or think about something lots of us struggle with these days, maintaining a healthy body weight, a healthy weight throughout our lives. Now, a lot of us joke about that, and a few of us were talking just the other night about this. You know, winter comes on, you open your closet, and you pull out some clothes, and you put on a shirt, and it won't quite button the same. Or you pull on those pants or that dress and it's a little too tight. Around our house, we just say, oh, that darn dryer shrunk my clothes again. I better go buy something new. So many of us say, I just can't keep the weight off. I understand. But have you met a person ever or heard of a person who had a heart attack and almost died? And then their doctor said to them, you've got to lose some weight. And if you don't lose some weight, the next one will probably kill you. And all of a sudden, they begin to make some healthier choices in regard to their diet. And they begin to watch their intake. And they begin to walk or 
participate in some other kind of healthy activity and they begin to get more fit and the weight begins to drop off. And the ones I have known begin to say, I feel better, I have more energy, this is good, I'm enjoying life more. And right along with the weight dropping off, their enjoyment of life goes up just as their longevity is going up as well. I don't think it's too strong to say that they became convicted. They became fully convinced that they had to make some choices in different ways if they wanted to stay alive. They were convinced. They were convicted. The conviction compelled them to act and energize them to overcome obstacles that before had stopped them from reaching their goals. In Christian history, this is mostly talked about in terms of people who have sacrificed for the faith, for people who have imitated, as Paul says in this passage, the Lord in terms of giving their lives even on behalf of the faith. They were witnesses. They were martyrs in some cases. Of course, the root of martyr is the word witness. They became examples for others, rock-solid examples of a fully convicted belief that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of my life, and that made all the difference for them. Paul wraps up this passage today after saying that these that he was writing to received the message of the gospel with full conviction. And then the last couple of verses he says he knows this because in spite of their persecution, they received the word with joy. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says so much so that you became an example to all the believers in your region What if we decided that's who we were? We were going to be fully convicted. We were going to be examples to others of what it means to be committed to the faith. Let's be that. Let's finish strong, counting on the Holy Spirit to work in us so that we can work in faith, labor in love, and be steadfast in hope. The good news is that God can do this work in you. That, in fact, God is doing this work in you. The gospel promises that God is doing this work in us and among us. And if we'll only open ourselves and allow the power of God's Holy Spirit to work, we'll be fully convicted in terms of our faith. Are you ready for full conviction Is there somebody that God could use you to be an example to someone else? Are you ready to trust the Holy Spirit to empower you, to lead you into the future? We're all going to have a few minutes here after we finish reading through the liturgy as we're coming for Holy Communion or as we're waiting for others to come. Let me suggest to you, you make it a matter of your prayer this morning of where God's at work in your life where God is leading you and asking God to empower you to move into the future that God intends. Amen.